You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. So, first of all, this is our first Facebook Live podcast. We're going to have it on the Facebook page. We're also going to put it on our traditional channels. If you've been listening to it on any of the podcast providers that we have, you know, Spotify, iTunes, all the above, all of them, all the main ones, all the above. And what today is intended to do is one, you get to see the sun shining off my great. <laughs> Bald head. His halo. I love it. I just got a fresh wax, apparently. (laughs) I forgot my sunglasses. They're in the office. Hopefully, this gives our listeners a chance to reach out and talk to us, ask us questions that they're interested in. We have also appreciate you guys. We've got a lot of questions that we can fall back on if we need to. Tons. Everything you all ask us about, bear with us, and I'll get you some answers one way or another. So either me... Corey will answer it or we'll send it to a biologist who could answer it better than we can because those are numerous. For sure. Yeah. So. Yep. No, it's good. I'm totally excited about this opportunity. Hopefully, we'll get a lot of good questions today. And we've already gotten from the email from yesterday that went out, what did we get, like 60 plus questions? Yeah. In just like a couple of hours, yeah. they started pouring in. So that worked out great. Yeah. Glad. Glad y'all are reading your emails. Yeah, exactly. Glad we're reaching people, so that's cool. And already we're seeing folks from all over the state coming in, and let's just go ahead and do what we need to do. How about that? The very first one? The very first thing, you guys have a lot of questions about flounder. Yes. We're going to go ahead, and we're going to go ahead and talk about flounder. We're going to get it out of the way. And then we're not going to talk about flounder. So that we can move on to other things. Yeah. So... So, you know, a lot of people know that flounder is, we're going to have two seasons this year. There'll be a season in inland water, and if you're hook and line fishing in joint water, and that'll be from September 1 through the 14th, the minimum size limit will be 15, and you can keep four fish per day. Then Division of Marine Fisheries is going to proclamate sometime soon that from September 15th through the 29th, they will have a season in both coastal and joint water, and that will be 15-inch minimum size limit and one fish per day. So that's the big difference. Inland and hook and line in joint waters during that first season is four fish per day, and then the second season is only one fish per day. There's a lot of reasons why that has occurred. Normally, we would not do that. Normally, we would do something very similar, uh, have very similar seasons. If you'd like to learn why that is, You can visit our website at ncwildlife.org. There's a video by our chief explaining why that has occurred. And then there's also a bunch of written information that you can learn as well. So that's what I would tell you to do to learn about flounder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go to YouTube, type in NC Wildlife Resource Commission. Right now, it's the very first video. It's got our chief on there, and he lays it out as good or better as anybody. And All the details are there about the inland joint and coastal waters 
and it's straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yep. And so that works out well. And I also will tell you, if you're looking for what is inland, what is joint, and what is coastal water, you can find that out at our website. Go to ncwildlife.org and look up where to fish. Go to the map. And if you go to the map and zoom in on the coast, if the water is not outlined at all, that is inland water. If the water is outlined in red, that is joint water. And if the water is outlined in blue, that is coastal water. There's also a legend there to tell you that as well, but that'll help you out so you can find out where you are, make sure that you're doing legal things and not getting caught in a bad way. In the emails that we got, there was some main questions that we got. And one of them was a lot of general questions about walleye. So why don't, for a second, we just kind of talk about walleye in North Carolina and the best way where to go, how to look for them, that kind of thing. Yeah, so walleye is native to the western part of our state. It's native basically to the western slope, everything that flows towards the Mississippi. And so you can find walleye in rivers, but you mainly most people fish for walleye in reservoirs in our state. And walleye is a fish that has struggled here recently in North Carolina because of invasive fish. And we've had a lot of introductions of different species of fish in our reservoirs out west. And one of those is river herring, which are native to the coastal plain, but not native to the western part of our state. But a lot of people have used those fish as bait fish in the western part of our state. And so what has happened is those bait fish have caused problems and caused recruitment failures, which means basically the spawning activities of walleye are not doing well. And so basically what we're having is year-class failure after year-class failure after year-class failure in our reservoirs. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to grow those now in our hatchery system to provide that angling opportunity in our reservoirs because a lot of our reservoirs are not naturally reproducing anymore. And so we're really struggling with still providing those opportunities for our folks to catch, but they're also difficult to raise at times in our hatcheries. So we're learning. It's a learning process. But walleye still occur in North Carolina, you just got to go find them. Lake James is a great place. We've actually done a lot of stocking at Lake James. Those efforts have been very productive over the past couple of years. We went for a period of time in Lake James where you couldn't really catch walleye because of that recruitment failure. And now we've gotten enough of the population built back up through stocking that you can actually go catch walleye again. But Lake Fontana is another place. I think Glenville is another place. And there's several other smaller reservoirs scattered throughout the mountain region that you can go and actually catch walleye. One of the places that most people don't know about, Ben, is you can actually catch walleye at Lake Gaston up on the Roanoke. They were stocked there by Virginia years and years and years ago, and the population actually took hold there, and they naturally reproduce. They run up the river in the spring of the year, like walleye do, and go right below the dam at Carr and reproduce. So there's actually walleye there as well. So I would really focus on Lake James and probably Fontana. Those are probably the two biggest reservoirs that have the most walleye in them. But also, if you want to know more about walleye, just contact us and we'll get you in touch with the biologists out in the western part of the state. They can give you even more information about walleye. But we do get a lot of questions about walleye. We will likely have a walleye podcast here pretty dang soon because it is a popular topic and there's a lot of things that we probably need to discuss about walleye on the podcast. That's right. So we did have a question, Miss Moody. She also sent me this email. 
She wants to know if you can use saltwater tackle in freshwater. And what I would say to that is it's all tackle. So it's really not salt or freshwater tackle. It is trying to imitate some sort of prey that a predator fish wants to eat. And so yeah. you can use things that look like shrimp in freshwater and catch bass on them. Oh, yeah. And the opposite is true, too. You can use things that look like crawfish in saltwater, and it can work as well. So Down in Newburn, I used to fish with just shrimp and catch bluegills all day long. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You can catch fish on just about anything. You just got to try. That's, that's, right. that's the key. And there's really only so many ways a big fish can eat something smaller. You know, whether it's, if you're used to fishing for saltwater, a lot of those same tactics will work in freshwater. And vice versa. A lot of the tactics, if you're used to fishing in freshwater, will work in saltwater. I mean, there are times that you can catch speckled trout on crappy jigs, Ned rigs. I mean, there's all these things that people use in freshwater. You can catch speckled trout on just about almost year-round, maybe not quite year-round, but pretty close to year-round. Right. One of the other questions we got was about Harris Lake. Harris Lake has changed significantly. Very much so. In the last, let's just say, five years, six years, something like that. Yeah. And some people have, it's changed, and they've adapted to it and have had success, and other people, we hear complaints from time to time about Harris Lake because of these changes. Let's talk for a minute about that. So for those of you who don't know where Harris Lake is, Harris Lake is just kind of south-southwest of Raleigh. It's a 4,000-acre lake that was known for probably my entire life as being a very good largemouth bass lake. It's also a very good crappy lake, too. But about, I'm going to say probably seven or eight years ago, hydrilla, which is an invasive plant, was in the lake and was very abundant, and anglers could fish around it really, really well. Hydrilla started to decline. And then over a period of time, it got lower and lower and lower, and it got to a place where the Division of Water Resources decided they wanted to get rid of hydrilla because it was a source population. So they stopped grass carp to get rid of that hydrilla. Well, what that has done is you've got a lot of that vegetation that a lot of people like to fish around. And so anglers are less successful now than they used to be at the lake. Part of that is the fish have had to adapt to not having that vegetation in the reservoir. And so they've had to really work at trying to figure out where these fish are because they're not hanging around that hydrilla mat anymore because that hydrilla mat's gone. And so the population as a whole, the largemouth bass population, our data clearly shows that the population has really not changed at all. The population's just about the same. So the fish are still there. The fish are still there. They're harder to catch. I will readily admit that. So success on the water has gone down for sure. I'm sure there are some anglers that success is about the same because they've been able to adapt and figure that out. One of the things I will say is that we as an agency, because when hydrilla was decreasing, we decided to do a real large-scale habitat program there. And we've put a lot of artificial structure. We've planted a bunch of native vegetation. And so what we're trying to do is restore that vegetation. It's going to take time. That's the key. Like a lot of people see that vegetation kind of come and go, the plantings that we're doing. And I will tell you, that's a 10 to 15-year process. That's not something that happens overnight. Invasive plants are really good at establishing and becoming invasive because that's what they are. Native plants take more time. It's just a lot longer in that process. So we're kind of in the beginning of that, moving towards the middle of that. And so some plants have done really well, and some plants have struggled. But eventually, our goal was to have vegetation throughout the reservoir. Now, 
the last thing I'll say about Harris, and I'll shut up about Harris, we'll move on to something else, is that the watershed has changed dramatically. We have a lot of people moving to North Carolina. So that watershed is becoming more and more residential. It used to be primarily all wooded. And now there's a lot of residential communities that surround that watershed. And so there's a lot more nutrient flow, a lot more just sediment going into the lake. Mm -hmm. So people see it shallowing up in the backs of creeks. And so a lot of things are changing on the lake. The water chemistry is changing. And so that does have effect on the population. What that means long term, I don't really know yet because we just don't know. But more than likely, it's going to affect it. And the last thing I'll say about humans coming to North Carolina is that there is a lot more boat traffic on the lake. There is. And so when you increase boat traffic, you do decrease probably your success at certain points in time. That's the last thing I'll say about Harris. I'm going to add one more thing to that is if you think about the way Harris was versus how it is now, there was places that were fairly expansive that had a lot of hydrilla on it. And the inside of those hydrilla mats were poor fish habitat. The edges are great fish edges habitat. Edges are great, yep. But the inside of those areas had low oxygen and the fish just weren't using them. Yep. So now the hydrilla has, is gone, those fish are occupying all that habitat. So it's spreading the fish out, so to speak, you yep. know. Yep. And so as an angler, you're going to have to adapt to that change as well. But the good news is... Once folks learn and share information with each yep. other and that kind of thing, the lake is still a strong lake to fish. Yep. You know, it was a strong lake to fish before there was hydrilla there. That's right. Well, I mean, for example, there was a tournament there that was, it's been a, several years back, and I think his best five fish was 49 pounds. So I'll let you think through that, what that means. That's a big bag. That is a big bag of fish. Right. And he was not anywhere near a hydrilla mat. So, yeah, it's not all about hydrilla. So we got Mr. Mark Price. We've met Mark a couple times. He wants to know when we're going to go weekly with our podcast. Not anytime we soon. We are not doing that. <laughs> not doing that. We love you guys. Love you, but no. But we're not doing a weekly. We have a regular job, too. <laughs> Monthly seems to be about, about all we can About all take. we can squeeze. Yep. But we appreciate your desire to want us to go weekly. So we've got somebody asking about our Stickers, wherever they were. We had a roll of them laying around over here. Stickers. See the stickers? If so, oh, I got them upside, upside down. down. Let me, that's not very good modeling. Not, there we go. There. Oh. If you want one of our stickers, email me. Yep, we'll get them. I'll get you one. Yeah, How we'll about get you that? a sticker. Normally, if we use your question, we're going to send you a sticker if we can anyway, especially in your email. If you give me your address, I'll send you a sticker. You know, we got all these printed. We don't need them. I mean, my daughter likes to play with them on occasion, wears yeah. them around the house, but I'd rather send them to y'all because, you know, they're getting all my furniture and everything. So. Yeah. And we are working towards some other things. We're working we toward potentially a bait. We're working on a bait. I'm pretty and excited about pretty that. Pretty excited about the bait. Working on a shirt. Right. So, so we may have some other swag to get out to yeah. folks here and there. So yeah. stay tuned on that kind of thing. So. We're trying. Yeah. Walleye stocking. We talked a little bit about that. We got somebody wanting to know more information about walleye stocking. Just get in touch with us. We'll get you the actual numbers. Yeah, if you'll just email us at twoballbiologists at ncwildlife.org, we will get you the numbers on walleye stocking. We'll get you in touch with the biologist in your area. And that's the best thing. And that's kind of the medium that we want to do. And I could tell them the numbers right now, but it would be a lie because I don't know them. So there you go. Let's not lie okay. on live internet. All right, I'll try not to. So. White perch. 
They're kind of an interesting fish in North Carolina. They are. In some places, they're invasive and cause problems. Yep. In other places in North Carolina, they've been for thousands and thousands of years, and they're just part of the ecosystem. So we've got a question from Mr. Freeborn about that. Let's talk a little bit about white perch and the good, the bad, the ugly. Why don't you talk about the good? The good. Well, the good part is from my part of the state down at the coast. White perch are native. They offer a great opportunity for fishing. They don't mind a little salt, so they can handle those kind of lightly salty habitats at the mouths of our rivers and things like that, but they extend all the way up the river. They are delicious. 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 In fact, might be one of the best fish you'll eat. And they're relatively easy to catch when you find them. Yes. You know, and they are in just about all of our coastal rivers. I would say that the Roanoke, the Choan, the Albemarle Sound drainage rivers are probably the best, but there's still some good white perch fishing in around Newburn, around Little Washington. There's definitely opportunities. White Oak River. White Oak River has them. Yep. And they're easy to catch. You know, a little beetle spin, a double rig with shrimp on it works. Yeah, anything with a natural bait. My favorite when I was living up in Elizabeth City was just a beetle spin, and instead of I would take the little two-tail thingy oh, off. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd take that off, and I'd put a, about a two-inch gulp curly tail on it. Oh, yeah. White perch like a little scent. Yeah. So yeah. that little gulp worked well. And the cool thing about it is anytime you're throwing a beetle spin, you're probably going to be able to You're going to catch them and maybe something else. Bass, yep. sunfish, et cetera, et cetera. It just works real well. But there's a lot of different ways to catch white perch, and they're a very popular fish. Yep. Now the bad. Now the bad. So they're, they are pretty much native, as Ben said, basically to the eastern half of our state. So they're even native down in the southern part of the Yadkin, and they're native in some of those pothole lakes like White Lake and places like that, aren't they? Or are they invasive there? I can't remember. No, they're, they're native. Those pothole those, lakes. Yeah, are... those pothole lakes down in the Sand Hills area. They're all in the southeastern part of our state. They're all native there. But as you move west, we should not have them. But they have moved west. Anglers have slowly moved them west. They were considered a pretty good bait for catfishing for a long period of time. I don't even know if catfishermen still use them or not at this point. So they got introduced into a ton of reservoirs in the western half of our state. And what that has done is they're really prolific at spawning. So they have lots of babies, a lot of babies. And they can outcompete things like crappie, white bass. They probably feed on eggs. They're young, probably feed on eggs of some of our other game fish species. So, you know, 40 years ago, the state, particularly the central and the foothills region of our state, was known for white bass fishing in the spring of the year. And now white bass are basically gone. There's a few pockets of white bass, but there's really not that many. A classic example would be Lake Norman. Lake Norman used to have a really strong white bass run in the spring of the year. I can't remember the time I've seen a white bass at Lake Norman. They've been gone for a decade. The entire Catawba Basin has basically lost white bass, and that's because of the introduction of white perch. And so we've said this a ton, Ben, on this podcast. Stop moving fish. Even you think you're not doing something wrong by releasing the bait that you got in your tank or whatever, which is actually illegal. Blue light. Blue light. You'll get a blue light blue special. Light special. But we got to stop moving fish because if we don't, we're going to continue to have these kinds of problems across our state. 
and white perch is just a really good example of a fish that in part of our state it's supposed to be there and it does really well it does really well in the other part of the state too but it's not (laughs) supposed to be there and it takes away from those native resources that we have there so it's detracting from what makes the western part of the state special that's right but the other part about that is is that in the eastern part of the state you'll catch Fairly large, large white perch in the yeah. coastal plain. I mean, that's where they're native and they do really well. But as you move west, because of their invasive nature, they reproduce a lot and they're just kind of small. You can find some medium. Don't email me. I know there's medium to large white perch in places in the western part of the state. I get that. I've caught them. But in general, most of them are really small, you know, maybe four, five, six inches long. And there's just a ton of them. I mean, you can go to Lake Norman right now and look on a down scan and you're going to see a cloud of fish and more than likely it's one of two invasive fish. It's either a Alabama bass or a white perch and there's a bunch of them. So they're very good at what they do. They are. They are. So both in the email and now in our comments, we've had questions about the hybrid study on Lake Norman. Okay. So I'm just going to keep Corey talking while I'm I'm going to be running through these questions. This hour. He thought I was going to do all the jammering. I did. But, but now we're... The roles have reversed. That's right. Okay, that's, that's right. right. So Lake Norman has what we call hybrid striped bass or Bodie bass, depending on what name you want to call them. And we did two different studies at Lake Norman. We did an exploitation study, which was for those that fished Lake Norman was an orange tag. And basically it was in their back. And if you caught it, you called it in and you got a reward. And basically what that was trying to do was estimate annual mortality or fishing mortality each year. And that project went from 2016 to 2021 or so and wrapped up. And then we started another project where we actually put telemetry tags in them. And what those are are tags that will actually track their movement. And so we had these stations all along the lake that if the fish passed the station, it would ping and it would tell, you know, how deep it was, what the water temperature was at the time. And we can go out and measure the oxygen based on that depth that we can read and we'd know what oxygen level they were at. There was reasons for the two different studies. The first study was really about fishing mortality. The second study was about what habitats are they in during certain times of year and if they're going to die in the oxygen squeeze in the summertime, which was our concern. And so... The exploitation study, the take-home there is it's a high mortality rate. It's probably somewhere between 60 and 80% annually. So that's more like a crappy fishery than a striped bass fishery or a largemouth bass fishery or something like that. It's a really high mortality rate. That's what we see in a lot of our crappy fisheries in North Carolina. So that's good. People are utilizing the fish. They're going out. They're catching them. They're taking them home to eat, which was what we put them out there for. But it helps us adjust stocking rates, which you've already done because of that. So we use that for management. And then the other study, the movement study, we could talk about that for hours. We're not going to, but we could talk about that for hours. Fish movement is... It's cool. It's neat stuff. It's really cool. So I'll hit the highlights. One of the things we learned is that the vast majority of those fish did not act like striped bass. Striped bass would go down in that hole in the summertime, get caught by the oxygen bubble, and die. That's why we got rid of striped bass and went with the hybrid striped bass. The hybrids, it's a small portion that gets down in that hole. The rest of them scatter throughout the entire reservoir during the summertime. And generally where they stay is in that 30-foot range. They stay right above the thermocline, which we've talked about on the podcast Mm -hmm. before. 
and they stay in that range throughout the summer until the lake turns back over and then they kind of move back down into deeper water. So if you're fishing for them in the summertime, I would tell you fish along the thermocline, along the river channel, throughout the entire river channel of the lake. They can be found also in Davidson Creek because that's a very large creek. They get on that thermocline in Davidson Creek as well and sit in that about that 35 to 40 foot range. If you see 35 to 40 foot range fish on your sonar, more than likely they're hybrids. They might be spotted bass, but more than likely they're hybrids. Another couple of cool things we found is that we once thought that if a fish was down in that bubble, they really didn't know how to escape. And that is not true. We learned through fish movement that a lot of those fish could be in that oxygen bubble and like all the water around them could be basically without oxygen and they could find a way through. Some fish looks like they practically swam vertical in the water column to get out of it. It's like Jurassic Park. They find a way. They find a way. And so we learned a lot of cool things. There's more to learn, and there will be reports that will come out about both of those projects. So just contact us, and we can get your information, and we'll be glad to share it with you. No, that's great. That was a good project. It was a very needed project. We had problems with striped bass, so we made a switch, and it seems like the switch is providing what we were hoping for. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a management win from that respect. That's right. We had another question about my stomping grounds, Rhonda Crapids Lake and Lake Gaston and the striped bass fishing there. And one of the questions was, why is it boom and bust? And then the second part of that question was, well, what's happened to the bait there? And I'm going to start and Corey's going to correct me because it's not really my area, but he's talked a lot. So I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. Exhausted. Once I start going down a rabbit hole, he'll pull me right back out and say, that spin's not right, and he'll fix it. It's so, okay. I mean, he's my supervisor. That's what he's supposed to do. So Lake Gaston, Runner Graves Lake are a very good numbers striped bass lakes. Not necessarily the place where you're going to catch a 30-pounder, but... Maybe. I mean, it's not impossible. But not really. But... The numbers of fish there are good because the stocking densities are high. We stock it relatively heavily because it gets a lot of fishing pressure. Yeah. And so the fishing's good. You know, if you want to catch fish up to maybe 25, 26 inches. Yeah. And there's always some 30s mixed in. Yeah. And I grew up there. I grew up fishing there. Like those two lakes held a special place to me, and especially striper fishing in those two lakes is a big, big part of why I am what I am. Whether that's good or bad is a whole nother discussion. Maybe we should cancel the stocking program now that it produces you. I'm now like, we know that it's, it's it not makes a good this. idea. Yeah. yeah. But there has been some significant changes in the bait and the bait, you know, that's in that area. And and that's in large part because of the introduction of blue catfish and Alabama bass. So, you know, basically two predators in the lake in striped bass and largemouth bass and native catfish, that kind of thing. Yeah. But now we've added two more pelagic predators that occupy the same habitats that the heron, which is the dominant bait fish in that lake, occupied. And so there's more mouths in the lake now than there used to be. A lot more mouths in the lake. And on top of that, they're very good at being invaders. And they're very prolific. Blue cats are prolific. Alabama bass are prolific, so there's just a ton of miles to feed. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Like, we get this question quite a bit. Where would you go if you're trying to catch a trophy striped bass in a reservoir? Right. 
And the only two places come to mind. The first one is kind of trophy-ish is Lake Road Hiss, mm-hmm. which is over kind of in the foothills region of our state. That would be the first place, I would say. The second place is Lake Hiawassee. Right. Lake Hiawassee has produced the state record inland freshwater, not river run, striped bass on, I think, multiple occasions now. You're not going to catch a ton of them because we don't stock a ton of them. They're, it's a very low stocking rate because we're trying to grow really large striped bass. But the ones you do catch are Honkers. significant. So right. that would be my suggestion, uh, just to follow up on that. And part of why, let's just use Gaston and Runner Crappies Lake as an example, the w- low retention, which by retention we mean the water that's in the lake flushes through Moves very through fast. Quick. Yep. It's also not a very deep lake, so the water that's in the lake gets hot in the summertime. And striped bass, although you can go to Newburn right now, and the water's 84 degrees. And catch them. And you can catch them. Striped bass just don't do well in hot water. Nope, don't like it. And when they're in hot water, they actually stop growing. It actually taxes them, so they have to put more resources into just existing yep and so they're not able to develop those resources into fat and growth and all that stuff so conversely when you go to a mountain lake like hawassi it's It's cold it's cool Mm -hmm. year round Mm -hmm. they don't have that problem and so you see fantastic growth rates coupled with the fact that they're relatively low density and they got all the food they need you can really see some growth rates so i know in the past my uncle's and granddads, they caught large striped bass in Gaston and Runnacravis Lake when they were first built. But a lot has changed, and it's not very likely that you're going to see a whole lot of fish over 20 pounds in those lakes. It happens. Those lakes do produce them, but because of those summertime temperatures and the tax that that puts on those fish, you're just not going to see near as many. You throw Alabama bass and 14 skillion blue catfish into the mix, and it adds that much more pressure That's to That's a it. word, y'all, in case you didn't know. Skillion. It's Northampton County or Halifax County. Which one is it? Where are you I think? actually learned that word yeah. from one of our hatchery managers. Oh, okay. So, so you, you didn't come up with that on your no, own? No, that's not my word. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point about, about the stress that they undergo in the summertime. We're actually analyzing a lot of our striper data over the last 30 years. We've been stocking striper since the 60s in reservoirs. And what we have seen is they just don't do well everywhere. And we thought maybe they would do well everywhere, and they really don't. And like, for example, we used to stock Jordan Lake here in Raleigh. And it's just, if you know anything about Jordan Lake, it is a flat, shallow, hot bathtub in the summertime. I mean, I mean... Some of the water temperatures can be 93, 94 because so shallow and so hot. And the stripers there, they would grow from basically mid-October to mid-May. And then from that point forward, at mid-May, they started losing weight. Like, they were slowly losing weight. Even though they were feeding and eating, they were losing weight and getting skinnier and skinnier. And so what that does is you get a fish that wants to grow but can't. And it spends that nine months catching up from all the weight loss that it lost in the three months. So the fish kind of stays about the same length 
but it's just trying to maintain itself. They get fatter, they get skinnier. They get fatter, get skinnier, fatter, get skinnier, and they don't really get any longer because they can't put any kind of measurable energy into growth because they're just trying to catch up from the horrible conditions that they lived in, and that's why we don't stock Jordan anymore. Right. So, in the summertime, especially in the eastern three-quarters of the state, we'll yeah. say, it's important to be careful with your fish, especially your striped bass. Oh, yeah. Because even if you're catching and releasing, the odds of that fish surviving that can be pretty tough, especially at really high water temperatures. So my advice is get those fish back in the water as quick as you can because those fish are taxed to begin with. Yeah. The stress of angling taxes them even more. And if we want to see those fish survive, we just got to get them back in the water, revived as quick as you can. You know, I'm not telling you not take a picture, but just have everything out so that you can do everything really quick. If you're holding that fish out for 15 minutes and you drop him in the floor of the boat five times and he barely <laughs> swims off. Probably the dropping in the floor of the boat is did him in. <laughs> probably not going to fare very well, yeah. you know. Yeah, and so right. just be conscientious. That even if you're a hundred percent catcher and release angler, you're having an impact on that fishery one way or another. So, and you make a great point. That's very true of maronid fish in general. Uh, hybrid striped bass, striped bass, white bass, even at some level, don't really like high water temperatures. Think basically anything over seventy-five. But that same could be true for trout in the mountains. Sure. Trout don't like anything above 70. Like if you're catching trout in water, like I know a lot of guys that won't even fish water for trout. One, trout don't even want to feed when the water temperature is above 70. For the same reasons we already talked about. Yeah, exactly. They're stressed out. They're just trying to figure out how to maintain through life. So just be very cognizant about your fish handling techniques, just in general. But really when water temperatures are high, you can really do significant damage to the fish that you're trying to release and you think you're doing a great thing and two days later it's dead so just right. be careful and that's not what we want no i mean if you're trying to release something you want it to yeah. live so you can catch it again if so you want to take it home and eat it that's on you too i mean that's good it's about being conscientious about your fish care and yeah. that's something that we as anglers with more and more people fishing more and more people in the water it's just a, a real important thing that we always have to to be aware of so we've also had some questions. We had a lot of questions emailed to us about smallmouth bass. And it's not that I don't want to address your smallmouth bass questions. We don't like small. No, I'm just kidding. We love smallmouth bass. Love them. Love to they catch them. They're very important fish to our Western, not quite trout anglers. Yeah. The guys that are at the bottom of the hill, so to speak. Guys at the bottom of the hill. Lots of opportunity, but... The very next podcast is going to be on smallmouth bass. So what we're going to do is say, is our answer to your smallmouth bass questions will all be answered shortly. Answered in the near future. Listen, I think it's coming out the middle of September. So great podcast. Yeah, we had our, awesome. One of our smallmouth bass biologists was on there with us. Wealth of knowledge. Yeah. We also caught a bunch of smallmouth we bass. We also went and caught a bunch of smallmouth, which was really cool. And that was fun as well. So... It's not that I'm ignoring your smallmouth bass questions. I'm just saying we get a whole podcast, and we want you to tune into that. So Did half the crowd just drop off because we said no smallmouth? No, they okay. stayed. Okay. Whoever's good. listening has stayed. Well, it looks. Well, that's good. So, I don't know. I have no idea why. Well. My wife tunes me out, so I would assume they would too. But maybe it's because I'm talking about fish. People like fish. Yeah, I like do. fish. I like fish. I like fishing. So... 
and following crappy, we're going to talk about crappy fishing for a minute. Okay. Which will be another near, near in the future podcast. I think that's October. Right. Yeah. So stay tuned on that. We'll be talking about fishing for crappy in the eastern part of the state in the near future. Those of you may remember last year we did one where we went to Jordan and we talked about reservoir crappy fishing. Yeah. So it'll be a completely different thing. That being said, crappy are kind of hard to follow. You know, they show up and then they go away. You know, and if you're fishing the same patterns, some people are seasonal crappy fishermen and some people follow them all year long. And we had a a question about crappy and he says he's having a hard time finding crappy in the wintertime in the heat of the summer. And the strangest thing, I don't know if it's the strangest thing about crappy because crappy do some unique things. I do. But the summer and winter patterns for crappy, especially in a reservoir, are very similar. So the fact that that you're having trouble during those two windows, to me, suggests that what you may want to do is try some different patterns. Normally, what crappy do in the summer and in the wintertime, especially the cold part of the wintertime, is they're going to be on deep structure. Yeah. Like deep. Deeper than you might think. Yeah. Like 30, 40 feet would not be the if craziest thing. If you got that kind of, of water, thing. that's where you need to be. And if you don't, whatever deep is relative that's right. for that term. Yeah. So I would focus on something that is relatively deep, something with structure or a ledge. Lots of ledges. Bridge pylons are often good, yep. that kind of thing. It's different than spring or fall where you're fishing blowdowns or docks or something like that. That's still structure because crappy are definitely a structure fish, fish yep. but not that kind of medium to shallow fishing. It's going to be fairly deep. The other thing is, you know, get some good electronics and map your area that you fish and make sure that you are where you think you are. That's right. Because you may be, especially for crappy, 10 feet is a long way off is a long way where off. you need to be. You know, that was one of the things we learned when we went out with our director fishing. Well, we may have already known it, but he taught it to us. We'll give him credit he's for it. He's a great He's tutor. a great guy. Yeah, he's a great fisherman too. Is that if you're a foot off of that structure, like it, depending on how tight they're holding to it, like in the summertime, they were holding really tight to it, if you remember, Ben. Oh, yeah. If you're a foot away, you might as well be fishing out in the ocean. Right. They're not going to hit your bait. But as soon as you get in that zone that you need to be in, they're there and they're there every time. Right. I mean, it may be six inches difference. Yeah. It may be the difference in right here and right there. Yeah. It was wild to see how tight they held to a certain location. So, so yeah, you're right. If you're 10 foot off, you might be way off. See, we got a few more questions coming in and I'm, I'm going to check them out. Pond management. We got a question about manual weed management in a five-acre pond. Don't do it. Do not do it. That sounds like a lot of work. Don't do it. <laughs> are you trying to have a heart attack? Because <laughs> if you are, that's a good way to do it. You'll never win that You'll battle. You'll never win. And, you yep. know, just raking it out or something like that. I mean, it, it may be a good workout program for you, you know, yeah. shed some pounds in the summertime. <laughs> but it's a lot of work. And so normally when we talk about weeds and pond management 25 percent vegetative cover is the magic zone but it's very hard to keep that i normally don't support any weeds just because it's a problem that's going to come down the road a lot of times what, you, what we'll recommend you do is you get up with your local biologist you can email us at two ball biologist at ncwildlife.com and we'll get you in touch with them or i'll just help you depending on what the case may be 
you may need grass carp in your pond, depending on the aquatic plant. We may say you need to use a herbicide. You may be a wintertime drawdown, maybe what you yep. need to do. There's a, all kinds of ways. And each plant is different. Like if you have one plant, it just depends. You really need to contact somebody that has experience with it because each plant is different. They're not all going to work. It's just like plants in your yard. You know, one thing works for dollar weed and another thing works for crabgrass. That's and exactly the right. And plants are the same way. Yep. And so it's really important that, one, you get a good identification of what the thing in question is, the problem plant. And then, two, make sure that you got a prescription that's going to help you. But we have gotten, especially this summer, it's been relatively hot, relatively dry. Aquatic plant conditions have been been really good. And so <laughs> it's been a boom year. So we've been getting a lot of questions about plants in general. So yeah. if you own a pond, you're going to have problems with aquatic plants at some point because it's just no way you can get around it. Pepperwort was just, Mr. Price just piped up. That's a common Eastern plant that we see yep. everywhere. Let's see. We got another question about... Is lake gassing capable of supporting larger walleye population? If so, have we stocked more? I would say it's kind of keeping at what yeah, it can do. Yeah, and it's really on the fringe because, once again, you're talking about a fish that's fairly cool water. They don't really like warm water. And Gaston is warm water for most of the year. There are some cool water pockets in Gaston. I'm not saying it's all warm water, but... Well, Carr is a bottom-affluent yeah, lake. Yeah, it's a bottom-affluent lake. So generally what you find, at least what I think I know, and I might be wrong about this, generally what you find is that a lot of the wildlife are in the upper half of the reservoir, where that right. cooler water effluent's coming out of Carr. They kind of tend to hang out in there. And it goes back to what we were talking about with stripers and everything else. There's just so many mouths to feed out there that stocking more is probably not going to get us anything that's not already there. Right. The population is kind of what the population is going to be. One, it was a stocking effort that was done many, many years ago that took hold. You know, would we be stocking walleye now in Gaston? And the answer is no. We probably would not be stocking walleye in Gaston now. So it just is what it is. I think that's where we are with them. Sure. Yeah. It's a good opportunity, but yeah, it's yeah. not a place where you're just going to go. And there are some decent walleye in that lake. There I mean, are. we've done electrofishing surveys up there on the river, and there are actually some very high-quality walleye in Lake Aston. So we've got a... Mr. Williams sent me an email, and he's got some questions. He says he's been fishing for a while. And the funny thing is, my college roommate used to be like this. He said he can't catch a fish on a spinnerbait. The funny thing about a spinnerbait is it's a very versatile bait, and it works. So the best thing you can do, especially in general, if you're trying to learn how to use a new bait, is to, one, use it a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be my Keep first thing it. is just throw it and throw it and throw it. You ain't going to catch a fish on mm -hmm. it unless you tie one on and throw it. Yeah, it's like trying to learn top water. It's really any bait, but, you know, a lot of people are kind of afraid of top water, and it's because... They throw it one time, put it in the box, and they never throw it again. You got to commit to it. But yep. a spinnerbait for really all of our bass species mm -hmm. is a very effective bait. You can fish it fast. You can fish it slow. You can burn it on the surface. Mm -hmm. You can almost jig one. Jig one. I mean, yep. there's a variety of things to do, but there's a time and a place for it, too. And really, with a spinnerbait, you're looking, I mean, that's a reaction-type strike. It's going to buzz by, that fish is going to see it and just mm -hmm. instinctually grab it. Yeah. Spring of the year is really like... Spring and fall. Spring and fall are like the spinnerbait times in my mind mm -hmm. 
one spring of the year, that's really around shad spawns, that kind of thing. Right. And so you're kind of mimicking a little bit of that with the shad spawn. So yeah, spring and fall would be my time to throw a spinner bait if I was going to throw one. Right. And the other bait that he kind of talked about is plastic worms. That's another versatile bait. The beauty of a plastic worm is that you can't fish one wrong. Yep. You know, you can rig them a million different ways. Yep. You can fish them high. You can fish them weightless. You can fish them weighted, deep. Weighted in different ways. It's weighted in a million different yep. ways. And I think the main thing is finding, especially with soft plastics, is finding maybe your core three to five baits that yep. you use. Yeah. A green lizard, a red shad worm. June bug, lizard or worm, a fluke. White fluke. White fluke. Yep. You can do a lot of things with just those baits. A lot of damage with those baits. Yep. So it's just a matter of putting your time in and really playing with it. Yeah. And being patient because a lot of times they will pick that bait up when it is sitting dead still. You know, so we got another question about... We've got one of our compatriots here asking why Texas is superior to North Carolina in terms of management, and he happens to work for Texas. <laughs> so, great guy. Appreciate you listening in. And I don't know why. And maybe we need to do some more research as to figure out if that's actually true or not. I don't not. think he's accurate, but, it, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, Texas has a lot of good they stuff got going on. a lot on. of good stuff going on. North Carolina has a lot of good stuff going on. So yeah. it's hard to compare the two because the good things are very different. Yeah. It also helps that you have a longer growing season. He does have a longer, longer growing, growing season. growing season is tremendous. We had a question sent by a parent who was really interested in taking his kids fishing. And he asked, like, what do I need to set up? to get set up to take my kids fishing. Corey, you have a son. I have a daughter. So we've both done a little bit of family oh, yeah. fishing. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. Like, you should do that. Like, yep. it's an awesome way to spend time with your family. It is. Especially this day and age. And it's relatively easy to buy some basic stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do a whole lot of crazy stuff and be fairly productive. So if I was going to make a suggestion, this is what I would personally do. Ben might have something totally different, but I would find a inexpensive, not cheap, but inexpensive spinning rod and reel combo that you can buy at basically any store, six to seven foot rod, medium light action, and put some line on it. Doesn't have to be heavy line or anything like that. Doesn't have to be fancy line. Doesn't have to be braid. Doesn't have to be, just has to be line. And a cork and a hook and go buy worms from the store, put a worm on that cork and a hook, and put it out there and let them fish. And go to the closest place that you can fish. Right. Don't go an hour, hour and a half away from your house to go fishing. There's somewhere closer, I promise. There's somewhere in North Carolina closer to you than an hour and a half for you to go fishing. If you need to know where that's at, you contact us, tell us where you live, and we will find you the spot. That's what I would do. Just simple easy to me that's the easiest thing to learn bait casters are harder and sure. you know other things like that but that's the easiest kind of thing to learn you know if it's artificial bait then i'd still go with a worm an artificial worm so that's great advice bobber hook i mean you're yeah. talking about you how can, most of us got started and you can do it anywhere you can do we're it anywhere in north carolina and we're talking about kids so i'm trying to keep it as simple as possible but worms can be intimidating for folks sometimes 
And so I might just say, go with a beetle spin. Just buy you a cheap beetle spin. That's true. That's a good point. And just tie it on there. I don't know if worms are intimidating. I mean, they don't really they like creepy crawlies. They don't storm at you or nothing. I mean, it's not like they're large or, you know, whatever. I mean, just saying. Okay, some of us had different experiences with worms growing up is what I'm learning. Evidently. So, no, I mean, it's easy. So I'm trying to go down the easiest yeah, path. Yeah, that is like, probably the easiest path. I don't have path. to worry about worms. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about keeping them cold. Just go buy you That's a little true. beetle spin or a little rooster tail. You're and always better. I, I don't know if I'm better. I'm yeah, just I'm just better. trying to cut through the path of least resistance to sure. get those kids catching some fish. Yeah, and about anything will hit a beetle spin. Right. I mean, I will tell you, well, I don't know. Do you think your success rate is lower or higher with a beetle spin versus a natural bait like a worm? I think worms and crickets are hard to beat. They're hard to beat. As a general rule, live bait typically wins. Yes, it does. But doesn't mean you can't be successful. That's right. So Okay. Wow. It's like we've been almost an hour in. Anybody got anything else out there? Let me look real quick to make sure we haven't neglected any anybody's questions. Lake Norman again. My kids like to fish with worms, and they get to feed them. Feeding the worms? I don't know if she's feeding the worms or the kids' worms. Eh, Let's hope not. It's good enough. But this has been great. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening. Again, we'll be posting the podcast the way we always do. Lots of good questions, lots of good discussion. So we really appreciate you guys. If there's anything that we can do to help you understand fisheries in North Carolina or help you catch fish in North Carolina, please reach out to us because we're going to do everything we can to help you guys out. So that's the only reason why we're doing any of it. And hopefully this has been informative. It's been great for us to just, it's, normally we have a guest. And it's been great that it's just been us being asked questions and being able to answer that. And hopefully we'll be able to do this again in the not so distant future and answer more questions for folks. Sure. That's what we're here for. We have a whole staff of biologists that are happy to answer questions. That's right. And we really want to get our information out in the hands of you guys. Yep. And so we appreciate your time today. And feel free to ask us questions at any point. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twoballedbiologist at ncwildlife.org.